Well, I hope you came early, well-rested, prepared to hear the Word of God. Take care then how you hear. Let's make that an application, not just for this week, but for, for the rest of our lives. Well, even as we've individually prepared, hopefully, to hear from God's Word, uh, let's now corporately, uh, together, go to the Lord and ask Him to bless our time in His Word this morning. Father, we praise You and we thank You for You first loved us and sent Your Son to die for our sins that we might be a people who worships You. And so as we seek now to worship you through the preaching of your word, we ask that you would help us, that you would grant to us ears to hear your word. We pray that in this hour we would see with the eyes of faith the glory of your Son as our compassionate Savior and our mighty King. We pray that you would strengthen our faith where our hearts are inclined towards fear and unbelief. We ask that you would, by the Holy Spirit's work in us, give us the great zeal to do your word, to put what we hear this morning into action by your grace for your glory. Father, we ask all these things in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Please take out your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, we come to this morning in our study of the Gospel of Luke to what has to be one of the best-known narratives from Jesus' ministry, uh, Jesus calming the storm. And so look along with me as I read our passage, Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. And so they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. So here's our game plan this morning. First we'll go through the narrative itself. And it's no wonder this is a children's curriculum staple, uh, the subject of so many famous paintings. Right? This is an absolutely fascinating story in itself, especially when you add some of the details that the other two synoptic writers, Matthew and Mark, uh, throw into their accounts. Right? This is an absolutely fascinating story. And then I want to draw out a few things that I think that Luke wants us to take away from this text, just in terms of application. And so let's start with the narrative itself. And I'll give you four points here to kind of keep us organized. We've got the sea, uh, the sleep, the storm, and the still. As I always say, alliteration is vastly underrated. The sea, the sleep, the storm, and the still. So point number one, 
We've got the sea. The sea in our story, and that's S-E-A, sea, is the Sea of Galilee. But you'll notice that Luke calls it a lake in verse 22. And that's because, well, technically speaking, it is a lake. Uh, Luke earlier refers to it as the Lake of Genesaret. It is the same lake where Peter earlier had that great catch of fish. You remember Luke chapter 5? And it's the same lake around which most of Jesus' Galilean ministry takes place. Uh, the town of Capernaum, right, which is kind of like Jesus' home base at this point in his ministry, well, that's located on the northwest shore of the lake. Now, this is a fairly large lake which is why I guess it was called the Sea of Galilee, even though it's fresh water. Uh, it's about 13 miles long at its longest and about 8 miles wide at its widest. And so uh, the whole lake is about 64 square miles total. That's a big lake. Uh, just to give you an idea of how big that is, the, the island of Manhattan is 23 square miles. Right? And so this lake is basically three times as big. Staten Island is actually 60 miles, 60 square miles, and so I could have given you that as a reference point, but let's be honest, nobody knows how big Staten Island actually is. So verse 22, one day Jesus gets into a boat in this lake with his disciples. Now remember that term disciples, uh, it's not necessarily a technical term that's only restricted to the twelve. Uh, it can also refer to his followers in general. And so who exactly is getting on this boat? We don't know. Uh, presumably the twelve disciples are there because they go everywhere with Jesus. But there might have been others as well. Mark adds the detail that there were other boats that went too. And so uh, this is a group of disciples, but it's certainly not the whole multitude, right? They're not like packing onto a cruise ship or anything like that. This is a small fishing vessel. And Jesus says to his disciples, well, let's go across to the other side of the lake. Now, if you brought your own Bible, and your Bible has those little colorful maps in the back, it might be helpful to look at that uh, so you can kind of see this visually. Uh, but basically, they are starting at the kind of northwest of this lake, probably near uh, the town of Capernaum, and they are heading to the eastern shore, where, as we're going to see next time, Jesus has an appointment with a demon-possessed man. Uh, and so this is a somewhat involved trip, right? Again, this is a huge lake, and so regardless of where the exact starting point or the ending point is, right, this is a trip of several miles on this small boat. Mark adds the detail that this is happening at night. Remember, this is before the days of electricity everywhere. And so the only light that they would have to really guide them would be that from the moon and the stars. But hey, listen, we've got a couple of lifelong experienced fishermen with us on this boat. You've got Peter, Andrew, James, and John. These guys have been making a living on this very lake for years and years. And so I think we're going to be all right. Like, like there's, there's nothing that these guys haven't seen before, and so there's nothing that these guys aren't going to be able to handle, right? Point number one, the sea. Well, that brings us to point number two, the sleep. So they set out, and verse 23, they fell, uh, sorry, as they sailed, he fell asleep. And so the boat's making its way across the lake, 
and Jesus is in the back, and he's fast asleep. Why? Well, let me give you two answers. Uh, One is practical, and the other is a little more theological. Practically, you know why Jesus fell asleep? Because he was tired. He was exhausted. Mark, in his account, mentions that the trip happens on the same night after Jesus taught all day. Not just the parable of the sower, but all the kingdom parables from Mark chapter 4, and presumably uh, other things as well. And so naturally, after this very full day of teaching and preaching, Jesus is completely exhausted. Not just from the physical act of public speaking, but surely also from the, the constant presence of the crowds. Being around that many people who are following your every movement and asking you for this and that, like I'm sure that's absolutely draining. And so Jesus fell asleep, partly for the same reason that you and I fall asleep, because he was tired. Well, that brings us to the more theological answer to the question of why Jesus fell asleep. And the more theological answer is that he fell asleep because he's man. Remember that Jesus, in his incarnation, he is totally God and totally man. Uh, Theologians call that the hypostatic union, uh, the mystery of these two natures in Christ, his deity and his humanity, right? Both being in one person. And so he's not like half man, half God, like a centaur is half man, half horse, Uh, He's not switching back and forth, like sometimes he's God and sometimes he's man, like Batman and Bruce Wayne. He is 100% God and 100% man at the same time, at all times. Now that is a mystery. That is a mystery of mysteries. But this story is an excellent illustration of that mystery of mysteries. He's God and he's going to clearly demonstrate that through this story. But he's also man. He's subject to the same limitations of humanity as you and I would be. He gets hungry. He gets thirsty. And he gets tired. He needs to sleep. You might get the impression from reading through the Gospels, like Jesus always seems to be on the move, and uh, there's several references to him praying through the night or getting up early in the morning to pray. Like, did he actually need to sleep? Like, did he actually need to rest like the rest of us? And the answer is yes. This is actually the only reference to him sleeping in the Gospels. But yes, he regularly slept. Hebrews 2.17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And so in humility... Jesus took on human flesh. He was made like us in every respect. And that includes the very limitations of humanity, like having to sleep. He is like us in every respect, except, of course, he never sinned. Point number two, the sleep. Well, that brings us to point number three, the storm. You've got the sea, the sleep, and now the storm. So thus far, we're about a verse and a half through this narrative. 
there's roughly nothing of note that's happened so far. Like they've been sailing across this lake. Jesus is sleeping because he's tired. Uh, there's really not too much to write about. But all that changes in verse 23. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And you see how with that one sentence, everything changes. One thing I didn't mention earlier about the Sea of Galilee is that it was known, and is still to this day known, uh, for its sudden, violent, unpredictable storms. Uh, The lake is really low in terms of altitude. It's actually the lowest freshwater lake on Earth. Thank you, Wikipedia. It's something like 700 feet below sea level. And so you take that low altitude and you add the the steep cliffs and the mountains that surround it. And then there's something about the cold air that comes down in these strong gusts from the mountain and then that mixes with the warm air that's kind of on the water and some mumbo-jumbo about barometric pressure and like this weather channel stuff. Uh, Whatever it is, you get these sudden violent storms that come out of nowhere time to time on the lake. And that's what they get hit with here. But from the way that the gospel writers describe it, you can tell this is not your typical storm even on this lake. Uh, Luke calls it a windstorm and describes vividly how the boat was taking on water. Matthew, in his describing the storm, in his account, uh, he uses the word in Greek, seismos. And you think about our English word, seismic, right? Like referring to earthquakes. And so he is figuratively describing like an earthquake on water. And so picture this in your mind's eye. And the waves are crashing against this fishing vessel, overwhelming it, filling it with water. Some of the disciples are probably just trying to scoop out the water as quickly as they can. The wind is blowing and tossing this boat around every which way. And you add to that, remember, it's, it's late at night. The boat doesn't have any electricity, any light. Like any torches or lanterns that they brought on, on the boat probably have been extinguished by now. And so the only real light that they have is the moon and the stars, and that's if it was still a perfectly clear night. I mean, this is an absolutely terrifying scene. And so even the experienced fishermen who are on this boat, right, guys who have basically lived their whole lives on this lake, they're crying out in panic and in fear. And as this torrential storm is going on and Everyone's going crazy, losing their minds. Where's Jesus? What is Jesus doing? He is still fast asleep in the back of the boat. A few years ago, my family and I stayed overnight at a, at a water park, uh, along with some other families that we knew. And we're all, on different, we're all in different hotel rooms on the, on the same hotel floor. If you've ever spent an entire day at a water park, then you'll know that it's probably second to teaching the multitudes all day in terms of how draining and tiring it is. So our family, and this is not just the kids, right? This is me and my wife. Like all of us, we are completely wiped 
by the time we get back to our hotel room, we get in bed, we're fast asleep, we get like the best night of sleep ever. The next morning, we wake up and we see our friends, and they look really tired and they look really groggy eyed. I'm like, oh, did you, did you sleep okay? Well, it turns out that in the middle of the night, a fire alarm went off on our floor. And so all of our friends evacuated their rooms to the parking lot at like two in the morning. But somehow, my entire family had completely slept through the whole thing. Now, it turned out to be a false alarm that was quickly dismissed, which is good because we didn't wake up. I went to my friend later. I said, well, thanks for leaving us behind. He says, dude, I texted you to make sure you were okay. No, thanks for caring. But that's what happens when you're really, really tired. You can sleep through anything, even fire alarms, maybe even violent storms. But see, I think there's more to Jesus' sleep than that. It's not just that he was really, really tired. His sleeping through this storm, it's also a picture of his perfectly resting in the safety of his father's care. Uh, Jesus, his, his sleep is a perfectly peaceful sleep, knowing that his will is perfectly aligned with the father's and not a hair on his head is going to perish apart from the father's all-wise plan. Uh, Jesus is fast asleep. He gives to his beloved sleep. But his disciples, well, they're wide awake. Not only are they awake, but they are terrified. And so verse 24, they go and they wake Jesus. Master, master, we are perishing. Point number three, the storm. The sea, the sleep, the storm, and now we have the still Second half of verse 24, he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And it's like, all right, well, that was easy. And the way Luke describes it, it's just so nonchalant and a matter of fact. But don't miss the really interesting word that Luke uses here to describe what Jesus just did. Matthew and Mark are going to use the same word in their accounts. And so the Holy Spirit clearly wants us to see this. Jesus rebuked the winds and the waves. You remember back in Luke chapter 4, the story of Jesus healing the demon-possessed man in the synagogue at Capernaum. Let me refresh your memories. Luke 4, starting in verse 33. In the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And what's the conclusion then? that the onlookers that they draw after seeing Jesus rebuke the demon like that. Verse 36, they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And so 
through his rebuke of the demon, we're supposed to see his authority and his power over the demonic realm. And so in the same way, we're supposed to see in his rebuke of the winds and the waves, his authority and his power over the natural realm. Or as the disciples say at the end of the narrative, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? Because it's not just that the winds stop. It's the winds and the water. If it was just the winds, well, maybe something happened with like the barometric pressure or whatever it is that just made the winds suddenly stop. It's also that even the waves, right, even the water is completely stilled. When my kids were younger, I used to do this little trick. And parents of young children, feel free to steal this and your kids will think you're awesome also. Uh, When we were stopped at a red light, I would say, all right, kids, you want to see something cool? You want to see me change this light to green? And of course, I'm looking at the traffic light of the cross street, and so I know exactly when the light's going to change. And I say, all right, kids, watch this. Boom! And the light would turn green, and the kids would be like, whoa, how'd you do that? So suppose the skeptic says, well, Jesus is just doing that. He's just timing this so that he says that when the winds were going to die down anyway. Okay, fine. But in that case the raging waves should have continued for a bit. But look at what it says at the end of verse 24. They ceased. There was a calm. Like the surface of the water is completely flat. It's completely still. There is absolutely no natural explanation for that. Jesus stills the storm, and not just the winds, but also the waters. Point number four, The still. So that's Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. The sea, the sleep, the storm, and the still. The narrative of Jesus calming the storm. But now what should we, as the people of God, what should we take away from this narrative? Well, to answer the question... I think it'd be helpful if we went back to something in the beginning of the story that at least at first glance seems like an incidental and minor detail. But it's very significant in terms of what we ought to take away from this story. You can imagine some of the disciples being like, we almost died at sea today. This crazy storm. Like, whose great idea was it anyway to cross this sea in the middle of the night? Well, the answer is in verse 22. Jesus says, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So I want you to notice that it was the disciples obeying Jesus' command that leads them into the storm. So sometimes storms of life, figuratively speaking, they come as a result of discipline, because of our disobedience, right? That we might repent and turn back to God, and we can think of the story of Jonah. But sometimes, Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 25, sometimes the storms of life aren't because of sin or because of the Lord's discipline, 
but rather they're gracious gifts from God that he uses to teach us. And so here's the question. What were the disciples supposed to learn from this storm? This storm that Jesus himself led them into. And by extension, what can we, as readers of this narrative and fellow disciples, what can we learn from this story? And so let's think about that now, the takeaways from this story, by thinking about the two rhetorical questions that are asked at the end of the narrative. The first rhetorical question is asked by Jesus to his disciples right after he stills the storm. Look at verse 25. He says, where is your faith? Where is your faith? Now, it's not that they don't have any faith at all. After all, they are following Jesus. And they did, in this story, turn to Jesus, right? They wake him up to save them. They don't wake him up because, I don't know, he's some expert at seafaring and he's got some nautical abilities that they don't have. No, he's a carpenter's son. They turn to Jesus Because he's Jesus. They've seen him do amazing, miraculous things. They've seen him heal the sick and catch a boatload of fish and cleanse the leper and even raise the dead. And so they come to him, at least believing he can do something to get them out of this jam. But at the same time, they definitely display a lack of full faith. That's evident in their panic and their great fear. That's evident in their language, right? We are perishing. Mark records one of the disciples saying, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Well, if they really believed and trusted in him, they would have had nothing to fear. After all, how could nature harm them if they were with the master of nature? Did they really think that the Messiah of all men would call to himself 12 disciples and then have them all perish on the sea before they were even sent out? And how could they die if they're on a boat with the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Like there's absolutely no way with his mission yet to be accomplished that that boat was going down. But the circumstances... The storm that they were caught in, the, the power of the winds and the waves, well, made them completely forget what they knew to be true. And so Jesus rebukes them for their lack of faith. Now, why this fear and unbelief? But before we are quick to judge them for their lack of faith, I think we ought to ask ourselves that same question. Where is your faith? You see, when the sun is shining and the the waters are calm, so to speak, we're full of faith. We're full of confident trust in God. And we really do believe that God is sovereign, that he's in control over all things, that our God ordains whatsoever shall come to pass. And we really do believe that as a child of God, we're immortal till God's work in us is done. And we really do believe that he is our protector and our refuge and our mighty fortress that nothing will happen to us apart from his perfect sovereign plan. 
And it's not fake. It's not a show or, or a pretense. Like we really do in faith believe those things to be true. But then those circumstances drastically change. The, the sunshine and, and the calm is gone and the tempest comes, the storms rise, the waves get choppy, we start taking on water and all of a sudden we're shaken. We're in panic and we're in despair and we're in unbelief and we just lose all sight of his love and his care and his sovereignty. It's like we forget everything that we know in, in just like a snap of the fingers. Whether that storm be the loss of a loved one or a physical ailment in our own body or cancer or job loss or abandonment or financial struggles or a season of darkness or anything else that life might throw at us. But friends, it's in those circumstances, precisely those circumstances, when it feels just overwhelming and the trials and tribulations and, and flooding and, and, and all that is just drowning you and just things seem to be spiraling out of control. Like in that very moment when you are tempted to panic, that's when we need to remember that there is not an atom in this universe that moves by chance outside of the sovereignty of God. Which means that every single storm that has come your way in life has come by the design of a loving heavenly father. He has called us to trust him in every storm that he brings our way. And one of the things that he accomplishes through those storms, through those trials, is to strengthen our faith and our trust in him. If you've lived long enough, you know this to be true. It's just a fact of life. The storms test our faith in ways that calm waters never could. Because it's in the storms, right? It's in the midst of those trials that any semblance of like self-reliance, self-dependence, self-sufficiency, all that is gone. And the situation leaves us with absolutely nowhere to turn except to God. And it's then that we truly find him and him alone to be sufficient. Now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that, so that, in order that, the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's exactly what Paul learned through some of the most grueling storms of his life. 2 Corinthians 1. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But, what was God teaching him through this? But, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So going back to our story, this storm, this storm was no accident. It was no coincidence. It was no happenstance. No, God in his sovereignty sent this storm, at least in part, so that the disciples might ponder this rhetorical question for themselves. 
Where is your faith? It's just to make this point really practical, let me ask. What are the circumstances, the trials, the, the storms in your life that tempt you to unbelief and distrust and despair? Is it physical health? Is it finances? Is it family issues? Singleness? Job situation? Uh, what is it in your life that tempts you to forget about everything you know to be true? And how might God be using those trials in your life to strengthen and refine and sanctify that unbelief and that lack of faith? And maybe most importantly, in the midst of those trials, in the fury of that storm, what then will your response be? Rhetorical question number one, where is your faith? A second, let's consider the other rhetorical question in our narrative. It's the one with which our story ends. The question is asked by the disciples among themselves. Who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? And you might think, I mean, you think about this story. There is this crazy storm, winds and waves, boats taking on water, panic and terror everywhere. They think they're going to die. And then all of a sudden, just like that, Jesus stops the storm. Everything is absolutely calm and peaceful. You might think that the disciples would rejoice. Wow, Jesus, that was awesome. But it doesn't say they were joyful. It doesn't say they were ecstatic. It doesn't say they were celebrating. Rather, it says they were afraid. And they were afraid. And they marveled. Why? Well, they're afraid. They're terrified. Because Jesus demonstrates through his rebuking of the winds and the waves that he is 100% sovereign and in control over nature, specifically the seas, specifically the waters. And to the Jewish disciples on that boat, they would have been really familiar with their Old Testaments, that would have brought to mind certain passages from the Psalms, passages that would leave them with an inescapable conclusion. Psalm 89 O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are. O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? Well, according to Psalm 89, it can only be the Lord God of hosts. He's the one who rules the raging of the sea and stills its waves. Or look at this parallel from Psalm 107. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind. 
which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went, up, went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord, Yahweh, in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He, Yahweh, made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. If you think about it, that's basically like the psalm version of our narrative. And so who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? Once again, the conclusion is inescapable. It's undeniable. It's Yahweh, the Lord. And so the same Lord who created all things just by his word, right? Let there be and there was. Well, here he stops one of the most powerful displays of nature, again, just by his word. One of the most interesting things about how Luke presents this narrative to us is that through this whole life-threatening, like about-to-drown storm thing, he never once tells us that the disciples were afraid. It's certainly implied in we are perishing, but it's never explicitly stated. You see, it's only after the life-threatening storm is over that Luke draws his reader's attention to the disciples' fear. They were afraid, and they marveled. Like they've been afraid this whole story. But now, let me point out to you, they were afraid and they marveled. Perhaps to make the point that the only thing more terrifying than a life-threatening storm is someone who can bring a complete end to a life-threatening storm by just speaking to it. And so once again, right, the disciples are brought face-to-face with this reality that this man that we're following Oh, he's no ordinary man. I mean, we take the hypostatic union for granted. Like, we know that Jesus is totally God and totally man. But remember, the disciples have absolutely no category for what they're seeing. Like, here's a guy who's a human being just like us. He walks like us. He talks like us. And he even sleeps like we do. And yet he is altogether entirely different from us. He's God the creator. And that truth, that the holy, holy, holy creator of the universe is standing before them, having taken on human form, was absolutely terrifying to them. And they were afraid, and they marveled. And so this fear then, in response to their realization that they're in the presence of the holy, it's not all that different from Isaiah falling on his face. Peter crying out, depart from me, O Lord. John falling on his feet, falling at his feet as though dead when he sees Jesus in the book of Revelation. 
Friends, there is nothing more terrifying than a holy God. That's a big, big problem for some of us in this room. Because some of us are here this morning and you know in your heart that you're not right with God. Uh, You came to church this morning. You've sung the songs and you've listened to the sermon so far, but, but you know that you are not right with God. You know that you are not saved. Well, to you, I tell you the good news that this same Jesus who is Lord over all, this same Jesus who rules and reigns over all his creation, including the winds and the waves, well, he humbled himself and he came into his creation to save sinners like me and you. Like the ultimate reason that he is on that boat is because he took on human flesh that he might die in the place of sinners. So that all who trust in him might have their sins forgiven and granted his perfect righteous record. So friend, today if God has opened your eyes to the terror of meeting him one day in your sin, that is a terrifying thought to be face to face with a thrice holy God in your sin. If the Lord has opened your eyes to that terror, well, today you can be saved if you would cry out to Jesus to save you. Who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? Well, he's the Savior. He's Christ the Lord who would die for our sin. Do you believe that? So the answer to rhetorical question number two, if rhetorical questions needed answers, is that this is Jesus who is Lord over all. But now, Christian, if that is true, if you believe that to be true, if the point of this story is that Jesus is Lord over all, and you read, you read this story and you believe that to be true, well, Christian, how then ought you to respond to his word? You remember what came right before this narrative in the Gospel of Luke? It's the parable of the sower and then those associated narratives about hearing and doing, obeying the word of God. So the disciples have been hearing Jesus teach that all day. Take care then how you hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. You've been hearing that all day and then that very night you get in that boat and you see firsthand how this same Jesus simply speaks a word and all of nature obeys him. To put it a different way, even nature has ears to hear. The winds and the waves hear the word of God and do it. Well, if he commands even winds and water and they obey him, well, how much more should his true disciples? Father, we thank you for this glorious story of 
the power and majesty of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Father, we pray that you would grant to us a a reverence and an awe for his majesty. That we would ask the question, who then is this? And find the answer, he is Christ the Lord. Father, we pray for those in this room who do not yet know you, who are still in their sin. Pray that you would open their eyes to a true fear of the holy and grant to them repentance and salvation. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.